FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have all of you with us today. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, but before I introduce the panel and begin our conversations about the news of today, I want to do a quick fact check, as we try to do as frequently as possible. Um, if you were listening yesterday, we had a discussion, of course, about Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, comments, really anti-Semitic comments about comparing mask-wearing mandates to uh, Nazi Germany. One of the panelists then said, well, Ilan Omar uh, has been named by the Jerusalem Post to be the most anti-Semitic member of Congress. Some of you re- reacted to that. I said on the air yesterday, we'd fact-check that, and here's what we found. Number one, It is true that in 2019, the Jerusalem Post did their annual poll survey of who are the most anti-Semitic American political leaders, and the readers of the Jerusalem Post named Ilan Omar. That was 2019. More recently, in April of 2021, uh, the Jerusalem Post posted their own fact check in which they said there had been a rumor about some anti-Semitic statements that Ilan Omar had made. It turns out these statements, much more recently, were not true, and the Jerusalem Post reported that. So I just want to make sure that we, when we have these conversations, we actually talk about uh, the reality as opposed to uh, uh, the opinions that sometimes are uh, uh, put forth by panelists on the show. All right. Let's get right to today's show. It's Thursday, which means uh, my partner today is Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, good to have you here. It is good to be here, Bill, and I I hope it's okay to let everyone know that you and I are in the GPB studio today together for the first time in well over a year. And it's just uh, thrilling to latch on to this little bit of normality. Yeah, normalcy. It's very nice to be here uh, with you. We are continuing, though, uh, to do the show for the most part remotely uh, for the time being. And so we are joined remotely uh, today uh, by uh, former 7th District Congressman Buddy Darden. Buddy, it's been a while since you've been on the show. We're very glad to have you back. I know you're coming to us from up in your uh, home territory of Marietta. Right, Bill. Greetings from downtown, lovely downtown Marietta. It's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> We're glad to have you here. Riley Bunch is with us today, State House reporter for CNHI uh, News, which has papers in mm, towns like Valdosta, Dalton, other places around the state. Hey, Riley, how are you doing? I'm doing good, though. I'm kind of jealous of you and Kevin. Can't wait till I get to make it to the studio. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll get you in here at some point soon. Leo Smith is back with us today. Leo is a longtime Republican strategist, uh, formerly worked for the state Republican Party doing outreach uh, and uh, minority outreach. And now uh, has an organization called Engaged Futures, working on how to bring diverse coalitions of people together around education and other issues of the matter. Hi, Leo. 
Hello from Smyrna, Georgia, where the crime rate is low. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, Leo, thank you for that because you take us right into the topic uh, that we're going to start with today. Kevin Riley, yesterday, uh, state Republican leaders, including Speaker of the House David Ralston, began a series of hearings, the first of a series of hearings, in which they are going to explore uh, what to do about the spike in violent crime in the city of Atlanta. Uh, The speaker made a statement to reporters yesterday saying apparently the people in the city can't figure out what to do about it, so we're going to have to step in. And Governor Kemp uh, simultaneously uh, announced the awarding of a $5 million grant to state law enforcement agencies to see how they can be involved in all of this. Kevin? Well, yeah, let's start out by saying, Bill, of course, we're going to talk about the politics of this issue. But for regular people uh, all over the state and metro Atlanta, the issue of crime is always important because people want to feel safe in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in the areas where they shop. And and as life gets back to normal and people are out, it's especially important. So you have to hope that the efforts by Republicans focused on Atlanta are sincere. But it's also a political position that I believe they can find a way to make hay with. Yeah, I think that it's become clear that Republicans across the country, uh, who more than ever are saying we need to nationalize 2022 elections, have picked up certain themes, and certainly violence in our cities is uh, one of them. Uh, Riley, um, as Kevin says, everybody wants crime to go away. We're all uh, outraged by the uh, increase in crimes. Any of the communities that we happen to live in, we don't want to see feel unsafe on the streets. Um, but the political angle on this, even Democrats, Riley, say, yes, we got to do something about crime, but it's not just crime fighting. It's how you deal with police departments, how you uh, reform things like community policing and that sort of thing. So we're all against crime, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, definitely. We, we like exactly like you said, we want our communities to be safe. But we knew this was going to be a 2022 race point, right? We knew this was coming. We had bills in the session this year, including this one signed into law prohibiting local communities from, you know, defunding their police to a certain amount. And I think that Republicans have also seen kind of the power of using committee hearings um, to push their, uh, you know, ideas and their the, their campaign promises. We saw that with the election uh, law hearings as well. And I think that for my communities around the state, Republicans are using Atlanta to build off of their narrative, right? That there's this really high crime problem that it needs to be fixed everywhere. And the, the leadership uncertainty with Atlanta makes it the perfect example to kind of push this policy agenda. Um, Leo, I, I said on the show yesterday and got some pushback, and I'll, I'll ask you first, and Buddy, I know you're going to want to weigh in on this. Um, I said yesterday that I thought there was a way in which uh, Mayor Bottoms here in Atlanta has created an opening for Republicans to talk about crime, the, the spiraling violent crime in the city, uh, because she 
at least from a communications point of view, wasn't as aggressive as maybe you would want a leader to be in saying, here's how we're going to address it. Here's my five-point program. Here's the task force I'm putting together. We can't tolerate this. Instead, she labeled it uh, the COVID crime wave as if uh, that in some ways excuses uh, the problem. So I wonder if, in fact, the opening isn't there for Republicans to score political points on this. Indeed. I mean, that is that is a big challenge for her. I mean, she's caught up in a, a nationalized Democrat message that we are to be soft and almost hospitable to uh, uh, to the idea of people breaking laws. And Republicans are certainly going to jump on that. If she had like been very direct about this, very metrics oriented, you know, I mentioned Smyrna a little while ago. Um, and, you know, you look at uh, fourfold, I think, the crime rate per 1,000 residents uh, is ver- versus the city right next to her. This is an issue that is not about only safety, but it's also about economic stability. You've already lost um, the Atlanta Braves to Smyrna um, because of crime, um, because of people's feeling of being at ease to do retail shopping around after a game. And now you have this continued swelling of a problem. And she's not directly addressing it, which leaves an opening for Republicans. You know, people ask me all the time, why are black Americans voting for Trump? It is not so much that they're voting for Trump as they're voting against Democratic leadership. Buddy? Well, Bill, as a former Cobb County district attorney back Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s and uh, a well-established crime fighter through my, my political career, I can say there's not an ounce of sincerity whatsoever in this, except it's a purely a political ploy by our Republican friends. They see an opportunity, as Leo mentioned, they see an opportunity, they seize upon it, and this is right straight out of the playbook that's been going on my entire adult life and my entire political career. The answer to it is not stunts. It's uh, not some of the things that we've been seeing done by the state legislature. It's uh, it starts with the community, and it's got to be addressed locally. And there's not enough resources in the state to take over Atlanta like they seem to want to do. But Atlanta's always been the boogeyman, and um, and once more, the state legislature is using this as an excuse to further their own political ends, in my opinion. I'm against crime as much as anybody, and my record will prove it, but I still think the whole thing is uh, politically driven. Leo, I wanted to ask you because I know that uh, you know you you're a you're a Republican at heart, and uh, but you're also a guy who resists the temptation to have a soundbite argument. So um, when you dig into this, and it, and Republicans dig into this. You know, what really are the solutions? Because in the past, we kind of fall into this law and order conversation and throw everybody in jail. And there seems to be a growing argument about, well, that hasn't worked so well in the past. But do you think there are more nuanced solutions that ultimately the Republicans will put forth? Absolutely. You know, I think that there's an opportunity that is being missed by um, just from a political opportunity that, you know, Republicans don't believe uh, uh, the base Republican ideology is smaller government, less interference. 
So the issues of search and seizure, no-knock warrants, those kinds of things have already been issues addressed around in, in Metro Atlanta from things that have happened in the city of Atlanta, people being shot, homes being uh, knocked into by police. Those kinds of things are things where Democrats or legislative leaders could have could have combined in their effort to support the blue, uh, and, but support citizens' safety and right to be. And, and we didn't take advantage of that. So those are some of the nuances and the opportunities that present themselves to create collective action across partisanship, across race, um, that would be meaningful. And what then that would flow into are community-based organizations across difference from suburbanite to urbanite, working together, millennials to older folks, to really start to address this issue. Those, those small think and do tank oriented sessions have not been led by Mayor Bottoms. I mean, she recently has put together this little task force, but this thing should have been happening a long time mm -hmm. ago, right from the beginning, and it never was. And so we have to not just have rhetoric about this, we have to be doing real things. Antonio Brown, a city council person running for mayor, um, African-American male, his car being stolen uh, just, what, yesterday, a couple of days ago, he pointed out two things. He goes, why are these kids in school? Because there was like ages from 7 to 11 years old driving off with his car. Why aren't they in school and why aren't they in recreation centers? He's talking about administrative leadership. Why aren't we keeping the youth busy doing positive things? When Mayor Reed was there, he talked about opening all the rec centers. Why isn't this working? Why aren't we having programming that are keeping kids focused? Well, Leo, let me follow up with that. Uh, you brought up the, the political, the mayor's race, I suppose. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, Kasim Reed, who everyone's just waiting for him to uh, decide uh, whether he's going to run. But um, if you were advising a candidate, and I don't think you are right now, but uh, how would you have them talk about this crime issue in Atlanta, especially against the backdrop of what the legislature? Well, the first thing I would do, um, Kevin, is as to not uh, continue to gaslight and throw grenades in the room, is use stats and, and talk about here are the trends, here are the types of crime from violent to, you know, other sorts of crimes. Here are the hotbed, the hot areas that this is happening. Here's the economic impact. Here's the quality of life impact. This is similar to what we went through down in uh, Savannah when we had Eddie DeLoach, a Republican, a white Republican, uh, win down there when he never had, because we just talk about the facts and then ask community people, what do you want us to do as a political candidate to fix this? And lead with that. And you'll be surprised that people become very pro-police when it becomes, comes to their safety. Um, you know, buddy, I, I, I want to, before we, I do want to talk about the mayor's race in this context. But before we get there, uh, uh, buddy, we, we, one of the things that makes it clear to us that there's a real political agenda here, all you have to do is go back and look at the bill that was passed by the legislature, signed by Governor Kemp, uh, which uh, prohibits cities local jurisdictions from uh, reducing their police budgets by 5% or more. And um, clearly that was a response to the calls for uh, defunding the police, which was never, you know, there were the city of Athens, city of Atlanta at least had conversations about that, but there's not been any real movement to defund police. police. And I'd like to hear, buddy, you and, and, and then you, Riley, uh, talk about that. Well, of course, as you know, Bill, this all grew out of the uh, some of the rhetoric out of the Black Lives Matter movement 
and there was some discussion, and there are always going to be uh, people on the radical side of every issue, and there was some discussion about it, about some of the demonstrators, but nobody seriously has ever considered that. In fact, uh, most people believe that we need to enhance our public safety budgets. A good example is right here in Fulton County, for example, Kevin, and is that the mayor missed a great opportunity when she didn't work with the sheriff to use the existing detention facility for a jail for the city of it's itself. So we're not providing the resources in the city of Atlanta that uh, we need we need to do. So we need to step up and make some concrete proposals rather than uh, use this rhetoric, uh, this defund the police. I know the young fellow, Houston Gaines. His dad was a judge over in, in Athens, and uh, somebody came up with the idea that this would be a nice thing to do. It's, it's one of these things like passing a law to uh, keep the elephants off your yard. You know, some people say, yep, we don't have any elephants now that the bill has passed. And it was totally meaningless, but at the same time, it had broad political appeal. Houston Gaines being the sponsor of that bill. Uh, Riley, uh, give you a last chance at this one. You're welcome to comment on any of that. But also, uh, this does seem to be the kind of issue that gives Kasim Reed a big opening to jump in there and run for mayor again. Well, I mean, it's local control until it's not local control, right? So (laughs) all these bills having to do with mandating what local cities can do with their budgets. If you recall, there was a a protest bill where it made it a a felony to block um, a street during a protest. And it also put counties and cities on the hook for these kinds of things. You know, it it really does put local um, lawmakers, local officials in a bind in terms of the Atlanta mayor race. I think that the... The entire situation with the crime, it has put an opening for everyone, and Kasim Reed especially, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Um, All right. Uh, We are going to watch to see. The mayor has put a hold the date. He sent out a note saying, save the date. I think it's in early June, at which we are expecting he's going to have some announcement, perhaps, about his return uh, to uh, uh, the mayor's uh, uh, contest here. We'll see how that goes. I think it's interesting, buddy. I, I turn to you on this because I remember quite well when after Maynard Jackson, who was, of course, a historic mayor, being the first black mayor of a major American city, served two terms. Many people would say accomplished quite a bit in those two terms and then decided to make a comeback, won a third term a few years later, and, buddy, There was no question that Maynard Jackson always regretted that he came back. He really uh, realized he was doing a lot better as a selling bonds. (laughs) You've got a very good point. He was doing very, very much better. And by the way, a little segue into something that's been said earlier about doing away with local control. In Cobb County, our Board of Elections is shifting from 4 to 1 Republican to 4 to 1 Democratic the uh, first, and all of a sudden, the state legislature now says that they want to control our local elections as well. So it's a matter, like you say, of whose ox is being gored. Okay, um, I tell you what. Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way? Uh, in the interest of fact checking, buddy, we should say that the legislature has opened the door for the possibility that they could, <laughs> in fact, at some point, step into local re- elections. They are not. Uh, saying they are doing that at this point. So let's just make that. I never never thought we'd have to. 
fact check, buddy. I never <laughs> thought that would happen. All right. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and be back with more on Political Rewind. CNHI State House reporter Riley Bunch, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the boss, Kevin Riley, buddy Darden Leo Smith on Political Rewind today. Hey, Riley, uh, you're, uh, you cover a good part of the state that includes a rural Georgians, and I, I'd love for you to start the conversation on the, uh, the, the, the relief bill, which earmarks uh, something like, uh, what, uh, $4 billion dollars for debt relief for African-American farmers. It, it's a measure that Raphael Warnock has uh, been championing. And, of course, over on the House side, because he's on the Ag Committee in the Senate, on the House side, David Scott, another African-American, is actually chair of the Agriculture Committee. So two African-American Georgia members of Congress have really taken this up as an important cause. But this $5 billion dollars, it's about to be distributed by USDA, and it remains controversial. Yeah, and I am so excited we get to talk about this issue on the show today. It is huge for my rural areas. And like you said, um, Senator Reverend Warnock has been championing this provision in the latest COVID relief bill um, for $4 billion in debt relief for farmers of color through the USDA. And this stems from really a a long history of um, biased lending programs against farmers of color, color with from the USDA, a history of discrimination within the department. It, it stems from, uh, even though it's getting attention now, it has it goes back years and years. Um, so this was definitely something that was exciting for rural areas. I think there's a lot of mistrust still. Um, I think once they start getting these these paychecks um, starting in June, actually, it's, it's a long journey of building back trust with the USDA for these farmers of color. But it has stirred quite a bit of controversy. You know, there's groups of white farmers who are saying that it's reverse racism against them, right, that they're not getting the specific targeted relief. Um, and then there's also big banking companies that are arguing that it's going to cut into their profits. So it, it's definitely been a win for Reverend Warnock, I think that it sets up high expectations for him, but it has stirred some, you know, harsh, hard feelings. You know, Kevin, I think uh, uh, we, we, the New York Times ran a, a big piece on uh, on the tension between black and white farmers over this. Um, they talked to a black farmer who said, you can really feel the tension. We've caught a lot of heat from conservative Caucasian farmers is the way he de- described them. And um I'm also interested in – I get it. White farmers saying, look, we're struggling too. But um, I'm also interested in this notion that the banks are saying uh, if we get our loans paid back more quickly than we thought, it cuts into our profits and it hurts our investors. Yeah. So the the issue of what white farmers are bringing to the table, you know, I think it exemplifies – the, the the overall t- it's a microcosm of the tension in our society. Do you do you favor one group to make up for sins of the past or not? And I think we're unresolved on that, and we'll we'll probably talk about that some more. But I I wouldn't want to be a banker making the case they're making against it because I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning worried about gosh is my bank making enough money? Now I'm not saying that's fair that that it's right. But I do think that that argument seems like a very tough one to sell to the public and not one I would want to have to sell to the public. Leo, is it a stretch to say that this debate, uh, to the extent there is one, 
is a forerunner for the conversations that we're likely to have as there's more and more momentum around the idea of reparations for black people in this country? I think for Democrats appealing to the progressive left, and there is a large movement of reparations interest happening across the country. We even have a bill that's been proposed to create a study committee on reparations for Georgia. And farmers are part of that, that, that discussion that has to happen. You know, I think support for South Georgia farmers is a winning message for Republicans. And I don't think that this issue is going to have lasting power like a lot of the other nationalized issues. I think that we have a history in Georgia and southern communities where black farmers and white farmers are not as antagonistic towards each other as are um, racial issues in the metro Atlanta area. And I think that this will sort of wane a bit um, and that the idea of just supporting farmers and farming in South Georgia will win out over time. Well, but Buddy, I'm not sure how it helps Republicans that it's a Democratic president of the United States whose relief bill includes the minority of farm uh, supplements. Bill, I think the last three panelists have characterized this very, very well. I'm going to go one step further. I grew up, by the way, on a family farm down in Hancock County, as you know. However, the agriculture industry in this country is the most highly subsidized per capita of any other industry. And you look at the fact that in, I believe it was 2020 or 2019, that direct payments to farmers uh, as a result of the trade war that Donald Trump started, for example, totaled about $32 billion in one year alone. And all of these people are getting all the money that, uh, from the Department of Agriculture, and now we complain about four measly, measly billion dollars going to uh, correct some very unjust situations that have happened over the years. So uh, I don't see any crocodile tears uh, being being uh, uh, justified here by the by these people, and I think it's a great thing, and it's something, in my opinion, that's been long overdue. Riley. I think that also, you know, just having this conversation about this problem and this issue in the ag industry, it opens up in a lot of avenues for Republicans, for Democrats to take on these rural ag policy issues. You know, there's so many issues in Georgia outside of the metro Atlanta areas. And now with Senator Reverend Warnock as chairman of the subcommittee that deals with ag, he has a lot of expectations riding on him, not just from farmers of color, but from farmers in general, you know, the, to figure out how to fix the H-2A guest worker program that Georgia so heavily relies on. It, it might not be a win for Republicans in terms of it was Democrats who did this, but it opens up an avenue, you know, this is important to talk about now. All right. Well, the $4 billion, Riley, is coming. It isn't as if it's up in the air or there's any question as to whether it's being delivered. And Georgia, African-American farmers are going to start seeing some of this relief. Apparently, USDA has green-lighted it, and it's going to move forward soon, right, Riley? Yes, payments are supposed to start as early as June, so eligible farmers will get notified in the mail um, by the USDA, and these payments will cover outstanding debts, up to 120%, so taxes linked to the debt as well. And there, there are a significant number of farmers, you know, that don't have debt to the USDA who feel that they're being left out. But farmers who are eligible about those 
There's about 2,800 farmers of color in Georgia right now, not saying they're all eligible, but the ones that are will start receiving notifications and steps forward in June. Okay, let's move on. Um, Kevin Riley, this is a national story, but it has impact here in Georgia as it does across the entire country. Your paper this morning on the front page has a story that uh, COVID illness has dropped to record levels in the state, which is such wonderful news for all of us, um, despite the fact we still have a very low vaccine rate, shots in arm rate compared to the rest of the country. We're getting to a point where we're feeling much more comfortable about the virus being under some control. At the same time, there is this troubling story that now uh, the, the White House has reversed course on where did this virus we know it originated in Wuhan, but was it the result of human-to-animal contact in that region, or did the virus, in fact, escape from a laboratory? For two years, uh, or for, for the year and a half now that we've been struggling with dealing with the virus here, um, the, the Trump White House insisted re- repeatedly on saying it was the laboratory that uh, allowed this virus to escape, that it was an experiment that got out. Um, Democrats have pushed back on that scenario. The public health community has pushed back on that community on that uh, scenario, including Anthony Fauci. And suddenly, uh, President Biden is saying, we better study this. It is a possibility. It's just thrown us all into a state of complete uncertainty about what's really going on and given us reason to question, were Trump Republicans right? Are Democrats? It's really become a fascinating story. Yeah, it it is a fascinating story in the way that uh, any uh, scientific or murder mystery is, right? We want to get to the scene of the crime, what really happened. Uh, the only thing that strikes me as odd about it, of course, I'm personally curious to know what's going on. And the WHO has been criticized, and in particular, the Chinese have been criticized by for not being open about the whole thing um, and appearing to limit the information that is available to scientists who want to study it. It doesn't change, uh, you know, exactly how the virus happened is important to note so that it doesn't happen again, but it doesn't change all the things we still have to do, the fact that the virus is present, the fact sure. that it could happen again. And uh, to me, it's I, it's sort of, I don't want to say it's an odd argument because obviously people are curious, but if we find out today exactly how the virus happened, that is useful to keep it from happening again, but it doesn't change all the things that well, have happened. But you just said the important thing. It's what do we do, learn from this about future viruses? And, buddy, I think, again, from a political point of view, there's something to be said about this. Democrats and much of the media uh, for the last year plus of the Trump presidency mocked the president, criticized the president and his advisors who suggested that perhaps this was a Chinese experiment that got out of control. Control. And now there may be a need to reassess whether or not those criticisms were accurate. And, and Fauci is under some fire over it right now. Well, Bill, I don't think the issue is uh, reassessing. I think the issue is finding the truth and see what happens here. And I don't think there's a political argument for either side. I think what you do is, uh, as 
we are not prone to do in today's society. We need to sit back and take our time. There's nobody on this panel, for example, I believe, who would be considered to be an expert in this area, even though we all might have our our issues. So let's just sit back, uh, see what's happened. I'm glad to see the president is going to revisit the situation because there appears to be some confusion out, out there. I don't have an answer, but let's just take our time, uh, let the pressure let the pressure. Uh, continue and uh, let's let's see how how it ferrets out. All right, but but Leo and Riley, that is precisely the reason I brought this up. Let's take our time and assess this based on facts. Our political environment, Leo and Riley, does not allow for us to do that anymore. We take sides, we choose the truth that uh, supports our leanings. And this is what, in this case, we've come to. It's, it's, Buddy's right. We've just got to watch this unfold, Leo. We've got to watch it unfold, and we've got to also critique the formation of the investigative team and whether or not it's politicized, whether or not there's an equal weighting of uh, ideology represented and the people there, just like we're looking at the January 6th Insurrection Study Committee. Um, we need to be fair about this, and Biden is incumbent upon him to show that leadership and, and, and saying, here's what has been done in studies uh, without being partisan about it. And here's how our considerations are going to differ and amplify and do better than those past studies. That has to be critiqued. Riley? You know, I would just say that trying to figure out the origin of this virus shouldn't be a, a partisan issue, whether each side has their own reasons for wanting to know. You know, we all want to know in the end, right? And Biden's in a tricky situation that there has, he's just one player in this international um, investigation into this, but he is being pressured from both sides, which is why I think he, you know, made the announcement and made kind of this 90-day deadline for a report. Um, but there really should, you know, it is a bipartisan issue. We want to know what happened. I do think, though, we can't forget uh, uh, the backdrop here, which is the relationship with China and, and the relationship that President Trump uh, wanted to have and thought we should have with China and, and what Biden's ultimate strategy will be there. And then, of course, you know, don't forget all of the criticism of the World Health Organization early on in the pandemic about uh, their own responsibility for this and the kind of decisions that they made and when they made them, because there is this suspicion and growing suspicion, particularly among conservatives uh, and Republicans, that these these international organizations want a lot of money from the United States, but then don't want to be accountable mm-hmm. for the kinds of things that that money is supposed to be used for. It's way more complicated than that. But that WHO thing, I mean, remember Trump withdrew the money and that was a big controversy. And um, if it turns out that WHO is not, you know, new things they should have shared or is not pushing for the answers to this, I think that tension will continue to grow. Yeah, precisely. And again, one of the reasons it's important to step back and not give into our first partisan instincts about how a story is unfolding. Thank you for adding that. By the way, Kevin Riley, uh, as we're talking, one of your reporters, Greg Bluestein, just dropped a story on your website. Governor Kemp is preparing to sign an executive order that would restrict public schools from requiring that student staffers and teachers 
wear masks. The Republican disclosed his plans during an appearance on Fox News where he railed against, quote, pandemic politics, the latest in a series of decisions to curry favor. This is Bluestein reporting with conservatives ahead of a challenging reelection campaign. And here's the quote from Kemp. We're not going to have a mask mandate for our kids or teachers who have the ability to get vaccinated. It certainly doesn't keep anyone from wearing a mask, but the time for mandates is over. Well, I think the governor, uh, that's no surprise, right? I mean, he, uh, he's he been going in that direction. He said those kind of things, that the time for these kind of government mandates is over. Um, again, on this show, we talk about politics, and I think that that kind of statement and he made it on Fox News. There's a reason he would he would do that at this time in that way, and um, I do think that there, that message will resonate with the with a lot of his voters, buddy. Well, it will resonate. However, Bill, I think we need a governor and not a stunt man. And this is just one more stunt, like going down to the border, uh, like he doesn't have the authority to tell these school people what to do. It's all. all I thought Republicans were about local control, and uh, if if the school says wear the mask, they they wear the mask. If they don't, they don't. But I think this is far beyond what the purview of the governor's office ought to be doing, and that we ought to rely on local control and local health policies rather than what some governor might want to tell Fox News to placate the public's discontent with his base. Leo. No, I'm in agreement with uh, Buddy on that. This is a message where he's actually saying that the school districts should follow science as it relates to their students. But the, the most important thing here is that what the governor is saying is, I want you to feel the reward, the carrot, um, for getting vaccinated and getting educated. Both of them are important, getting vaccinated and getting educated. He's putting a priority on those things. And this follows the Biden approach to saying that you don't have to wear a mask when you're out about if you're vaccinated, okay? And we know that the data related to vaccinated people um, and young kids in the pre- prevalence of getting the virus is about equal. I mean, it's not a whole lot different. Riley, before we get to our final break, uh, you were the one who brought up the subject of local control, except when the yeah, Republicans don't want local control. <laughs> well, I think if anyone was... Um, unsure if Governor Kemp's campaign has started for 2022 yet. They, they definitely know by now. Um, but it is always this local control until they don't want local control, right? And we've seen Kemp make these decisions throughout the pandemic, the original mask mandates for local cities and um, counties. And I, exactly what Buddy said, I think it opens up this conversation in the future of, you know, what does the governor have this purview over? It's a, it's a really interesting conversation. And um, I would, I'm going to be interested to see how local school boards react to this. All right. Um, we got to get to our final break of the show, but we'll be back with more on Political Rewind in just a moment. Welcome back to the show. Okay, uh, very quickly, last Friday, just as we were going on the air, uh, the, the the Jolt, the AJC's political news, basically newsletter, uh, reported that David Ralston was having conversations with uh, Republican leaders in Washington that suggested that perhaps he himself was thinking about 
uh, taking on Raphael Warnock for that U.S. Senate seat next year. We spent a good amount of the show talking about David Ralston. And uh, after the show was over, about an hour later, I got a call from his communications director who said, thank you for helping me earn my paycheck today. Our phone hasn't stopped ringing since you talked about that. And yes, the speaker wants to take you up on your offer. I said, we didn't make an offer. He said, yes, you did. You invited him on the show. I said, no. We said, we'll be interested in hearing what Ralston has to say. Guess what? Ralston will be on the show tomorrow, and we'll ask him about that. Is he really thinking about running for the U.S. Senate or not? Plus, there's so many more things that we want to talk to him about, and he'll be on uh, during our uh, show uh, tomorrow. That ought to be a fun conversation, Kevin Riley. Yes, you know, Bill, and it's worth uh, mentioning because it's so confusing, the Senate race, because we just had one, and, and then you're yeah. talking about another one, right? So here's, right, we have, it's worth summarizing. This was Johnny Isaacson's seat, mm-hmm. right? He, he resigned uh, for health reasons, and then the governor appointed Kelly Leffler, who then had to run in a special election Again, and, and it, in a runoff, I guess. And then it turned out to be her against Warnock, who won. But that term expires. The Isaacson term the expires Isaacson in 2022. 2022. Yeah. So that's why we yeah, have exactly. yet another election uh, right, right around the corner. And David Ralston, as Speaker of the House, many people believe he, he may be the mo- most powerful politician in the state. And and he has a big job now with a lot of influence. Um, that makes many skeptical about so, whether he'll. Okay, Kevin, so, Bill, can I make sure. one prediction? Of course. I've known David Ralston. Uh, we've been friends for with him and his family for 35 years. They are rock rib Republicans. His dad was Republican clerk of Superior Court up in Gilmore County. Their credentials, Republican credentials, are impeccable. David. Ralston is not going to run for the United States Senate. Uh, look back at Zell Miller. Zell Miller took the appointment, uh, lost all power, was miserable, and made everybody else miserable for the for the You heard it here time. first from Buddy Darden. But you heard it here first. David Ralston is not going to run for the United States Senate. Well, of course, that is buggy speculation. And as he may be right, Riley, you don't think he's going to run either. How do you? Why would you go from the most power? What many would say— is, is the most powerful position in the state, not not without uh, thinking about the governor as having enormous power as well, to being one of 100 people who sit and argue all day. Well, that was exactly what I thought about when I read the jokes when they reported that. You know, I thought, why would he want to be in Congress right now? You know, <laughs> I, if anything, the last session, the last election showed how much power state houses across the country really have. You know, it, why would Ralston want to go from being House Speaker, where he holds the solid majority, can make these, you know, pretty immediate changes to the state, through legislation, um, to a stalemate in Congress try, trying to get stuff passed up there? You know, I also think Ralston cares about holding on to the House more than he cares, the Georgia House, more than he cares about being a member of Congress. He's not going to risk that, the majority here. You know, Leo, David Ralston's a pretty smart guy, and allowing this speculation to continue certainly does, among other things, help him continue to raise a lot of money, which he can use in his own campaign and can help with Republican incumbents whose seats he's trying to save. Campaign funding, and he is a power player in campaign funding, 
And what he's basically saying is, hey, all you Republican candidates or those thinking about it, I am still not impressed. And if, I, if you send me somebody that I can be impressed with, I will get the caucus behind you financially. That's kind of what he's signaling there. And uh, that's the opportunity that lies before Republicans who might want to run for Senate. Yeah, I, but, you know, uh, I think, Kevin, the fact of the matter is that we've talked about on this show, uh, the Republicans haven't put forward the kind of candidate who has the stature that they really would like to see uh, running for that seat. Right. I mean, that was uh, what we thought would happen, right? Uh, if Leffler wasn't able to win the seat uh, in the election, they would just come back I mean, a couple of years later with with something uh, with someone who could or they felt like they could. And it's it's been strange because all the people you thought might be that person, uh, including Leffler, have you know said no or basically signaled. No. Well, we haven't heard Leffler. Yet. Right. I mean, have signaled. And then Doug Collins has just said said no, no. So it's uh, – I mean, that's what I love about this show, the endless speculation of well, things Well, I mean, that it's could politics. Happen. All yeah. right. Buddy, real quick. My friend Gary Black wants to run. Yes. He told me he wants yes. to run, but nobody will get behind him. Yes, I know. That's re- – okay, buddy, I want to turn to you uh, 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 for a couple minutes at least because you – we had a front row seat for this when it first unfolded. We are hearing that Donald Trump has asked Newt Gingrich, who is, of course, a big supporter of Donald Trump's, to – revisit the contract with America, which was the document that Newt Gingrich unveiled in Washington during the 1994 congressional races. He nationalized or tried to nationalize that race around 10 points in his contract, term limits, all that sort of thing, uh, tax cuts, whatever. And many people credit that with helping Republicans sweep into the House uh, that year, and it made Newt the speaker. I happen to have been at that news conference uh, out in front of the United States Capitol the day that the contract was unfunded. I was part of that uh, team. Uh, it's interesting that it's coming back all these years later, buddy. Yes, Bill, and I was one of those people who was swept out yes, by the so-called <laughs> contract to America. But, but to me, you can't define the next election on past elections and to take a disgraced former Speaker, and he did leave under disgrace, as you know, for ethical considerations and others, and also a failed presidential candidate who managed to lose not only the presidency but the House and the Senate as well, I don't think is a very good basis upon which to base a campaign. Well, Leo, just my opinion. Well, Leo, I, I think the other side of that would be that, yes, all of the things Buddy said about Trump are true, except he remains the most powerful force in Republican politics today. Indeed. And, you know, he's Republicans are in a place where they can't afford to leave talent on the bench. Say what you want to say about former Speaker Gingrich. Uh, he is a talent. He does have quite a bit of influence. Right now, Trump and Republicans are looking at um, the fact that Internet traffic around Trump is actually decreasing a little bit. I mean, I saw one report that uh, he ranks uh, Trump's uh, page and his messaging right now ranks 10,241 in global Internet traffic where it used to be in the millions. Uh, I mean, it used to get millions, tens of millions of hits and comments. And so they're looking for a way to bring traffic around a Republican message and to use messengers like Newt, who specializes in throwing grenades, um, to, to, to create that energy. And I think uh, that strategy is going to be impactful. Um, I'm not a big fan of just throwing grenades. I, I like substance, but uh, here we go. 
Uh, you know what, uh, Riley, uh, Leo's comment about Trump's uh, web page, which is getting no traction whatsoever since he's been banned from Facebook and Twitter, uh, is what led to uh, Florida Republicans, uh, the governor included, to decide that they should punish social media sites. This is a brand new story that uh, ban uh, political candidates from being on their sites. Uh, you can't get enough of this stuff, Riley. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, cancel culture is running rampant, right? So I'm not absolutely not surprised to hear that in any way, shape, or form. You know, going back to this idea that Trump might even be losing some of his following base, I think that uh, I'm not going to pretend like I know a lot about this contract. It was a little bit before my time. Um, but I think that it, uh, to show my age a little bit, but it, I think that it really is kind of can we bring Republicans back to one message? Can we pull them from to the either two right. ends that they're on? Right. right. You know, our, is anyway. That's yep. That's what I think. I, I thank you for that. Uh, we'll keep watching to see if that really happens. Uh, but Kevin, before we leave, you, you and I before the show talked about the fact that um, Atlanta, the state, lost a great, great business leader. Uh, Pete Carell uh, has died. Pete Carroll was such an important force in shaping the city of Atlanta the way it is today, in rescuing us from ourselves in some ways. Right. And, you know, we have his uh, obituary on the front page today, and uh, I think that says a lot. Not a lot of people, when they pass, uh, you know, end up on the front page. I think, uh, again, as a relative newcomer, a decade here in Atlanta, he was that guy who carried on that Robert Woodruff tradition in Atlanta where he, sure, he had a company to run and he had uh, all those responsibilities, but he saw himself as a citizen of Georgia and Atlanta. And he's credited with rescuing a troubled Grady Hospital. That's the effort that is, if we're going to single one thing out, buddy, it would be that. When Grady Hospital was suffering under, staggering under enormous debt, it was Pete Carell who said, we have to save this institution. We cannot put ourselves in a position of having a a, a hospital that caters to the needs of the underserved uh, fall apart around us. It would ruin our reputation across the country. He went out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars, despite enormous controversy around it, including from the black community, which at first did not trust him uh, to be able to lead an effort like this. He stepped up. We were at the University of Georgia together, by the way, and I remember him back then and as a rather nondescript guy, but he sure, sure went a long way. Did a great job for this for this state and this nation. Leo, he, he, you know, it, Tim McDonald, Reverend Tim McDonald, an African-American leader, said he was skeptical about whether Pete Carell really had the bright heart for any of these efforts and ended up saying he was my brother uh, and, and accepted the white Pete Carell as someone who really was operating in the best interests of all of us. That's awesome. And I know Reverend Tim McDonald well, and I know that when it gets down to the heart of serving people, He's a pretty fair judge, and, and, and that tells me a lot about Pete Carell. All right. Um, that'll be the last word uh, for uh, today's show. Kevin Riley, thank you for coming into the studio today. What a pleasure to have you here.
It's great to see you in person. Yeah, you too. Riley Bunch, Buddy Darden, Leo Smith, it's been a great pleasure to have all of you on the show today from your remote lo- locations. Uh, and we are going to continue, for the most part, doing the show remotely for the time being, just to be perfectly safe during the pandemic. That's it for us for today. As I said, tomorrow, among our other panelists, David Ralston will be here to talk about the fact to confirm what Riley Bunch is convinced, and Buddy Darden are convinced is the case. He's not going to run for the United States Senate, but who knows? We'll wait and hear what he has to say tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. You're not mandated to wear a mask, but it's probably still a good idea to do it out there in most situations. And if you don't have a vaccine, now's the time to get one. See you all tomorrow.